Bibles into Galatians chapter 1. We're going to look tonight again at verses 6 through 10. And I'm taking my time with this because there is such such an important message that's taught here in these verses. Now, I want to read the scriptures first, and then I'll take you through some opening remarks of the message. Galatians chapter 1, verse number 6. I marvel that ye are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel, which is not another. But there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. But though we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. As we said before, so say I now again, if any man preach any other gospel unto you than that ye have received, let him be accursed. For do I now persuade men or God, or do I seek to please men? For if I yet please men, I should not be the servant of Christ. You know, many people think that the Bible is just an ancient book. It's an antiquated book. It really doesn't have any application to people today. I mean, this was written for people that lived 2,000 years ago. And so people kind of have the sense that there is no connection between us and people in the Bible times, except for maybe that they're human and we're human, and that's about all that there is. Their problems are, are not our problems. Their world is not our world. And so why do we spend time with this book that is outdated and has been written for another time? Well, the fallacy of such an argument could not be seen any more clearly than what we find here in the book of Galatians. And unless we just decide that we're going to abandon religion altogether and we're we're not going to have any kind of relationship with God, then we're going to see and understand that humans have not changed, that fundamentally constitutionally, spiritually, we're still the same. Nothing has really changed after the, over these past 2,000 years. And we're most concerned, of course, about the spiritual man because obviously there are, there are great changes in technology and medicine and the conveniences of life. Uh, there's been a social and a political shift since the times of the Apostle Paul, even though he uh, lived where democracy had its beginnings, which is in the Roman government, yet Paul didn't know democracy and freedom like we know today. In those days, half of the population was in slavery, and some of that was a very cruel sort, such as we've had in recent American history. But then there was another part of that slavery that was beneficial to people, and and that might be a little bit hard for us to understand, but it was actually beneficial because there were many people that were so poor that they couldn't take care of themselves, and so they would sell themselves into slavery, and that would be their means of support. So they would move into households, and they had food to eat. They had a warm place to sleep. They had employment, and they did have some reasonable comfort and happiness in their lives, and yet they were slaves. Well, The social mores have changed today, and we know that. It's not like that today, at least not in America. But what has not changed is the spiritual condition of people. And what has not changed is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what has not changed is that there is still strong opposition to the gospel of Christ. And what has not changed is that there are preachers of truth, and there are preachers that tell lies. And when you think about that, if truth hasn't changed, if it's perfectly consistent, then the objections against that truth have to be the same types of objections. 
Solomon in his cynicism said, there is no new thing under the sun. In other words, we've seen it all before. There's nothing new. So the objections to the gospel that existed 2,000 years ago are the same objections that we find today. Now, they've been repackaged just a little bit, and you might term it green religion because it has a very effective recycling program, but it's pretty much the same thing, the same kinds of heresies. So the problems that Paul addresses here in the book of Galatians are the very same that we face today. We face people that are trying to destroy the gospel, and the most dangerous among them is not the atheist. The most dangerous are not the agnostics, and it's not Islam, and it's not any of the other of the great world religions. The most dangerous thing to Christianity today is Christianity, or should I say a perverted Christianity that alters the gospel only slightly. Now, there's just a slight difference. There may be a small shift, but that small shift is such a radical departure that just a slight deviation in the beginning becomes a monumental change of direction. And what happens is that heaven is lost and hell is gained. To illustrate that, you would take a, maybe a train track and you have two parallel tracks and these tracks run the same. They're consistent because they have uh, the same length of ties that are between them. But if you go a little ways and you decide that you're going to lengthen one of those ties, then the tracks start to go apart. And when you get to the next tie, it has to be a little bit longer. And you go to the next tie, a little bit longer still, and the next one a little bit longer still. And if you did that over several miles, then you'd never have an idea that those tracks were ever together. And that's what happens with the gospel of Christ. You take just a small shift in the truth, and you've got big problems. Now, it's not that we can't disagree on certain Bible doctrines. I know that everybody doesn't agree 100% with me. But when it comes to the gospel, we have to have complete agreement. There is only one gospel of salvation, and it does not admit to any deviation of any kind. And that's really the gist of the message that we have here in verses 6 through 10. Now, I've just given you a summary of that, and you may think, well, well, it's time to move on now. We've got that down. But this is just really too important for us to summarize. In fact, this is so important that there is an intended, very deliberate curse that's put on anyone who tries to lengthen one of the ties in that track. See, changing the gospel is very serious business. John Stott gives two reasons for its seriousness. He said, first of all, the glory of Christ is at stake. And he said, secondly, the souls of men are at stake. And when you think about the Bible, what is the Bible but centered on those two issues, isn't it? The glory of Jesus Christ, it's about that, and your relationship to the glory of Jesus Christ. So it's very, very serious business. Well, since this is a third of these messages, I'm going to give you just a brief summary here of previous material. And I do have another part that I'd like to consider tonight, and I do want to get to that. So first we talked about the consternation of the apostle, and that's Paul's concern that the churches of Galatia had been infiltrated with false doctrine. 
And he's very upset that these people that had received the salvation of God, the grace of God and salvation, have now become confused by legalists who are trying to convince them that they are not fully justified by faith alone, but they need to add something else. They lack something in order to be right with God. And in this case, they lack circumcision, and that was the sign of the Jewish covenant. And so the Old Testament taught that when Gentiles were converted to Judaism, they had to be circumcised. And that's what brought them in and made them acceptable in the congregation of Israel. And what these Judaizers tried to do was to incorporate that into Christianity, put that into the gospel. And so they were saying that that justification is not complete unless there is also circumcision. And that is not a subtle difference. That turns the gospel on its end, and Paul was not going to admit to to any changes in what he had taught them. Secondly, we talked about the call of the gospel. Uh, These are people that had believed the truth. Verse number 6 says that they had been called into the grace of Christ or by the grace of Christ, and that is an indication they had truly believed. And so final apostasy is not an issue here. They have become temporarily confused. And so Paul had good hopes that he would be able to straighten them out. But he does know this, that there is no way that this church is going to make new converts unless they have got the gospel of Christ straight. They have to have it down right. It has to be corrected. So I spent some time explaining how that we're called by the gospel and how the purpose of the inner call is to change the heart. And that change of heart is a permanent change. And in the end, truth will prevail. That's because the Holy Spirit lives inside of the child of God. He helps him to discern error and to refuse error, even though for a time he might be deceived by it. Thirdly, is the confusion of the gospel. And here's where we talked about what happens when you alter the gospel. And when you do that, it's first of all, when you try to uh, slip something else in there, it's first of all an insult to the cross of Christ. If you try to add works to faith and you say that salvation is not complete without your works, then you're saying that Christ did not fully complete our salvation at the cross. And it's to say that Christ didn't do enough. And so it devalues the worth of the cross, and it devalues the, the blood of Jesus Christ in the atonement. Secondly, it invalidates the grace of God. Works for salvation are incompatible with grace for salvation. You can't combine the two, because when you do, you destroy the principle of both. Grace becomes an obligation for God, and, and it becomes merited, which would be the antithesis of the meaning of grace. Then thirdly, it incurs the wrath of the Almighty. And Paul is hot on this subject as he comes to verses 8 and 9, and he says that anybody that preaches another gospel is cursed. And it's as simple as this, that Paul is saying, let his destination be hell. And so there's no cajoling here. There's no sympathy for some poor mixed-up teacher of gospel perversion. None of that. And that leads me then into what I want to talk to you about tonight because we're going to expand more on verses 8 and 9, and this will be the subject for a couple of more sermons. And this is the curse on false teachers, the curse on them. He says in verse 8, But though we 
or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. As we said before, so say I now again, if any man preach any other gospel unto you than that ye have received, let him be accursed. Let him be accursed. And the word there is actually anathema, which has the meaning of devoted to destruction. Now, you'll notice there that Paul is not pleading in these verses for repentance. He's not asking here for tolerance. He's not into giving gentle rebukes for this. But he uses one of the strongest words that he could have used. And he says, let this person, essentially it means let this person be condemned to hell. And so we think, why does Paul use such strong language here? Well, I mentioned it a moment ago. The glory of Christ is at stake. The souls of men are at stake. Now, tonight I want to concentrate mostly on the second aspect of that, and that's what a false prophet does to the souls of men. His perversion of the gospel makes him complicit in the damnation of the souls of men. You You know, it's bad enough that somebody would endanger physical life. And when somebody kills somebody, we we put murderers in jail. And then after 300 appeals and 27 years of feeding them and giving them free health care, we might put one of them to death if it's not determined we're violating their rights by pricking them with a needle. uh, We might put them to death. And maybe that's a bad example, but we put murderers in jail, we put them to death. I will say this, that God has no qualms about what he does with a false prophet. He'll put a false prophet in the hardest part of hell and have no remorse whatsoever that he had to do it, if you want to put it that way. So it's serious how a person handles the word of God. In fact, the Bible says that there is great scrutiny that's placed upon a person who handles God's word. James wrote in James 3 verse 1, My brethren, be not many masters, knowing that we shall receive the greater condemnation. And there, uh, James is talking about saved men. He's speaking about a saved person that desires to teach the Word of God. And he says, you need to consider that very carefully. You need to think about what you're doing because you're going to give an account to God. Now, if that's what he has to say about a born-again teacher and somehow that somehow we're going to be judged by God for what we teach, somehow we're going to give an account to God, and that account doesn't mean eternal death for uh, a person who's really been saved, a true uh, teacher of God's Word, but he warns about how serious that is. And if it's serious for someone who, who is a Christian, a child of God, how much more serious are the consequences for somebody who is not and deliberately perverts the gospel of Christ? Now, Jesus gives an indication in Matthew 23 when he was speaking to the Pharisees who were supposed to be examples of righteous living and they were supposed to be teaching truth. He said to them, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayer. Therefore ye shall receive the greater damnation. And there's a few applications that we could put on that, but surely we have to see this, that religious leaders are ones that have been trusted to tell the truth, and if they deceive the innocent and knowingly do it, or whether they don't knowingly do it, if they're deceiving the innocent, they're going to receive greater damnation than those that they have deceived. Now, considering false prophets, you you really, we have to think about who they are. What is it that defines a false prophet? What is their motive? 
Well, a good place for us to start is in the book of Acts chapter 13. So I'd like you to turn there if you would. And uh, this place is an appropriate place for us to look because the incident that I want to talk to you about here in Acts 13 happened in the same part of the world that we're speaking of tonight. Now, it wasn't in Galatia, but it was on Paul's first missionary journey, and it was just before he got into Galatia when he was just starting out. Uh, and so we find here in, in Acts chapter 13, Paul gets a taste for what he's going to encounter when he gets into this missionary journey. Chapter 13, verse 6 says, And when they had gone through, now that would be Paul and Barnabas, when they had gone through the isle, and the isle there, the island, is Cyprus, under Paphos, and that's located on the western end of Cyprus, they found a certain sorcerer, a false prophet, a Jew, whose name was Bar-Jesus, which was with the deputy of the country, Sergius Paulus, a prudent man, who called for Barnabas and Saul and desired to hear the word of God. But Elymas the sorcerer, for so is his name by interpretation, and that would be the same person who was called Bar-Jesus earlier there. It says, But Elymas the sorcerer, for so is his name by interpretation, withstood them, seeking to turn away the deputy from the faith. Then Saul, who also is called Paul, filled with the Holy Ghost, set his eyes on him and said, O full of all subtlety and all mischief, thou child of the devil, thou enemy of all righteousness, wilt thou not cease to pervert the right ways of the Lord? Now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon thee, and thou shalt be blind, not seeing the sun for a season. And immediately there fell on him a mist and a darkness, and he went about seeking some to lead him by the hand. Then the deputy, when he saw what was done, believed, being astonished at the doctrine of the Lord. Now in these verses we find pretty much a definition of a false prophet. And we're going to look here to see what Paul says about this man. And we're just going to get a start with it tonight. I can't finish it. False prophets are a, a huge topic in the Word of God. Jesus had a lot to say about them and also the apostles. So we can't possibly cover the entire topic of false apostles tonight or false prophets. But we're going to talk on uh, uh, one particular area here this evening. In verse number 9 we see that Paul had been fully apprised what this guy was all about. And this, of course, is because Paul was led by the Holy Spirit. God told him uh, what he needed to know, so he had this keen insight. And in verse 10, he begins to describe what a false prophet does as he addresses this false prophet named Elymas. And he begins with, O full of all subtlety and mischief. And there's where I want to spend our time tonight with that of all subtlety, oh, full of all subtlety and mischief because a false prophet is deceitful. That's what we want to see tonight. False prophets are deceitful. That's what subtlety means. It means deceit. And it's the work of a false prophet to twist the word of God and with cunningness and with subtlety, he makes people believe a lie is the truth. Now, Paul explains in Ephesians chapter 4 about this. He says, This is the way they work, by the slight of men and cunning craftiness, whereby they lie in wait to deceive. The idea of deceit in a false prophet is what Jesus describes in Matthew chapter 7. And he says there, Beware of false prophets which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. All of you have seen those cartoons with the big bad wolf 
and he has a sheepskin pulled over him. And he gets in among the flock of the sheep by looking like something that he's not. And so he looks like he's gentle and he's friendly and he appears as a sheep, but he's actually a wolf who's come in to destroy the sheep. Now that gives you some idea of the analogy of this, but that's really not quite right because Satan or this wolf does not come in, this false prophet does not come in disguised as a sheep. He comes in described uh, disguised as a shepherd see the wolf is not really trying to look like a sheep he wants to look like the shepherd he wants to look like the one who leads and that's very fitting because this is what false prophets want to do they're never content to be ordinary like the sheep they want class and they want position they want to be over the flock and not among the flock and so it's no surprise that as we read in the book of Galatians that there are false prophets there that are challenging Paul's apostleship. And what they want to do is they want to be the apostle. They want to be the leader because the leader is the one who holds sway over the people. A leader is the one who, by virtue of the position, is looked up to as the protector. He's listened to and he's expected to know what he's talking about. Without flattering myself, I I would say that some of you, or perhaps when we have our larger crowd on Sunday mornings, there are some that listen to me and they accept what I say because I'm supposed to know what I'm talking about. And so they don't question me. There's no element of doubt in it. They accept what I say because I'm the leader. And I've told you many times before, I don't want you to do that. In fact, I mentioned that again this past Sunday morning. That's not what I want you to do. I want you to respect the office. And I want you to respect me enough at first to think that I'm, or assume that I'm going to tell you the absolute truth. I'm not going to attempt to tell you a lie, but I also want you to be like President Reagan. I want all of you to be Republicans. That's not actually what I meant, but I want you to be like Reagan said to Gorbachev, trust but verify. All right. A false prophet wants to be a leader, and that's because leaders have the most influence. So he is a wolf in the clothing of the shepherd. His interest is not in helping the sheep. His interest is in devouring the sheep. And that's the character of Satan, isn't it? It's what Peter said about Satan. He said he goes about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Satan uses that kind of deceit. But what Satan does not do, he does not appear as a lion. He doesn't appear like the caricatures of him suggest. He doesn't come with a red cape and a red suit, a pitchfork, and with horns. He doesn't come that way. He doesn't come in any kind of horrid picture of a half-man and half-goat with horns and devilish eyes. He comes in a pretty picture. He comes as an angel of light. He comes as someone who is desirable. And that's his deceit. And so instead of coming with some wild, outlandish tale that nobody will believe... He comes with something that's very similar to Christianity. It's just a tad off. It's plausible doctrine, especially if he appears and those who follow him appear to have Christian virtues, if they're kind, if they're gentle, if they have some Christian characteristics to them, then they're quite believable. But his deception is to slip in the railroad tie that's just a tad longer. It's just a little bit different. And that's not noticeable at first. You don't see it at first. And then when he gets in and he's fully accepted among the sheep, that's when he begins to wreak havoc with their souls. 
You wonder how Jim Jones got 900 people to follow him to Jonestown in Guyana and to drink the Kool-Aid? He didn't start out, follow me and you're going to end up dead. That's not the way he started. He was subtle. He seemed to be quite orthodox at first. In fact, if I remember correctly, he began as a Methodist. And he was influenced by some Baptists. And then he was influenced by some Charismatics. And then he decided, well, I'll just start my own church. And it looked pretty good at first, I think. It looked like he had a worthy social agenda. His idea was integration, which wasn't hugely popular at the time. But he was uh, preaching integration, and that seemed to be innocuous at first. And he began to draw people in. And he had an agenda. But his agenda wasn't Christ's agenda, and it wasn't a salvation agenda. His agenda was a Jim Jones agenda. And so, with deceit, he was able to pull that off. And long before the Kool-Aid ever happened, he had already dropped a bit of poison into the mix. I don't know how many have ever read the story, The Count of Monte Cristo, but that's one of the things that you'll read in there. It was just a drop in the lemonade that killed somebody. That's the instrument of death. So this is what happens with a slight variation, with a slight deceit concerning the gospel. It takes something that's healthy and it's good and refreshing and life-giving and it turns it into something that kills. And so Satan's principal work, I'm going back here now to that thought I had a moment ago. Where does Satan do? Where, where is he working? It's not the atheists. We don't have to worry so much about them. It's not the agnostics. It's, it's, not, the, it's not the people in Islam. Uh, Satan doesn't concern himself too much with people that are in the bars and people that are at Hooters and people that are in the nightclubs and in the pot houses. He's already got those people. What Satan wants to do is to get into the church. What he wants to do is to come and camp out here to a place like this and bring in a false Christianity that really looks good, but it's actually a deadly poison. Now, you can hear it when you... Listen to the speech of some that claim Christianity. You'll hear some subtle influences of Satan. You know, I've noticed it here more than I did when I was in Kentucky. And I think that's because there's more diversity here. There's, there's more influence of different cultures. Back in uh, my neck of the woods, as Brett likes to say, in my neck of the woods, uh, there were a, a lot of Campbellite churches And I've described to you what Campbellism did in the middle of the 19th century to Baptist churches. These Campbellites began to get into Baptist churches and they split them in two. And you can still see the effect of that today. You go back to where I lived in Lexington and you'll have a Baptist church here, not very far away. There'll be a Campbellite church. And that's because of the split that happened way back in the middle of the 19th century. And so they split over certain doctrines and... uh, the division was over mainly over baptism. So the Campbellites were led by a man named Alexander Campbell, and he was teaching that baptism is necessary for salvation. And he started teaching that in Baptist churches. He was a polished speaker. He was a very, a very smart man. He was gifted. And before he was done, he'd torn up churches all over the place, especially in the tri-state area of Kentucky, Indiana, and Tennessee. And today, uh, that, that also spread, I should, should say, it also spread into Texas, and that's why you find so many uh, Campbellites in Texas today. But the problem there was baptismal regeneration. 
And that seems like just a slight variation of the gospel, but that is so deadly and so devastating that in its worst form, which is what you find, and I'm going to throw out a name for you here, it's what you find in the churches of Christ, that they have become so, or they are so legalistic that they're as bad or even worse as, as Roman Catholics on a work salvation. Now that's what Satan does, working within the framework of Christian doctrine. He perverts a doctrine like baptism, and it's not long before baptism becomes salvation and not faith alone. But when I came to California, it really wasn't these pure streams of Christian doctrine that were perverted. That didn't seem to be the main concern. Instead, there was something new that was introduced. In this multicultural diversity that we have here, the Christian religion has been infiltrated with Eastern mysticism. You have the New Age movement. That's really big. You have a mixture of Buddhism and Hinduism and all these other isms that gets thrown into Christianity. And that's really big in other parts of the world, especially among Roman Catholics. uh, Mother Teresa in Calcutta, India, she had no trouble at all mixing Buddhism and Hinduism in with her Christianity. I mean, she accepted all these other gods that they worshipped as long as they knew we've got one big god. We got the main God, that's Jesus. She didn't want everybody to know, I've got Jesus, but your other gods are okay. Now, coming back to, to us here and in, in where we are, let, let me give you an example of this. And I've heard this multiple times. In fact, just a while ago, I had someone in my office that was talking about his faith. And you know what he said to me? He said, now, he's, he's supposed to be a Christian. And he said to me, my karma is messed up. He said, um, I need to get my karma straightened out. And that's when my eyes get real big. Because when you come to my office, you don't want to get your karma crossways of my dogma. We're going to have a talk about that. So Satan plants these seeds in people's minds. What he does, he tries to confuse Christianity. And he's still doing that by perverting biblical doctrines. But he also throws in a little of these others here and there. And it's not too long. Pretty soon, Christianity is unrecognizable. It's not biblical Christianity any longer. So Satan doesn't stand outside the church and throw rocks at us. I mean, we're, we're protected as long as we're within the four walls and we can lock the doors. Satan's not going to have much effect on us like that. But if you unlock the door and you let Satan inside, then you've got a problem. Now, I mentioned this, uh, something that Jude said last week. He said that there are false teachers that have crept in unawares. There's one commentator who said they crept in because they were creeps. You know, I think that we're afraid to say things like that today. We're afraid we're going to offend somebody that didn't sound too Christian. But I think naming the names is really not all that bad when the Apostle Paul said, let them go to hell. That's pretty serious, I think. Uh, Calling them creeps is kind of mild next to let them go to hell. So if you unlock the door and you let Satan in, you're going to have trouble. And we notice here in our text that Paul says that in verse 7. He says, but there be some that trouble you. And so whenever a false teacher gets into the church, you have trouble. And that's what's happened in many Baptist churches. Now, you know, I am very careful about associations. Sometimes maybe you think I'm too unsociable. But there are pastors... And there are churches that are around us. They don't come calling here because they know that we have a reputation as being isolationist. Maybe I'm too cautious. 
Maybe you think I'm too cautious, but folks, I know what happens when you unlock the door. I know what happens when you let Satan in. And so we watch out for that. And I'm not saying we're the only church that teaches truth. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying this. We're going to verify. We're going to verify before we mix with anybody. So this is deceit of Satan. We have this description in Acts 13. It's exactly how a false prophet works. He wants to get into the leadership. He wants a TV program. He wants a radio ministry. He wants to expand the ministry to get a huge following. And he can do that by just starting with creeping into a crack, just a small place where he wiggles in. Satan gets in through an unlocked door, and when you give him an inch, he's going to take a mile. Now, the false prophet has a motive, and we're going to talk about that more next time. But whatever that personal motive is, Satan allows it. If it's a personal motive, that's all right, because what he has in mind is the big picture. How is he going to destroy the flock of God? So, there's a lot that we can say on this subject. I'm trying to get your karma straightened out. I don't want you to be reincarnated as a stink bug or anything like that. And so we're going to try to get you to a higher plane. We're going to think like God thinks. That's what we're going to try to do. We're going to stick to what God says. And what we will not do is to give a place to the devil. Neither will we give a place to any of his lackeys. We're going to be careful with who we associate. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your many blessings that you've given. Thank you, Lord, that we have a church where we can come and worship you and we can look into your word and we can just hopefully tell it exactly as the word says it. And that's what we want to do. We don't really want to hold anything back. Whatever's written here needs to be told. It needs to be told just like it says it. And so, Lord, that's what we want to do. Bless your people for coming tonight. Lord, help us to uphold the truth at all times, to be very careful about any perversions of gospel about, and doctrines that we hold to be the truths of your word. Thank you, Lord, for your people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's all stand, please, as we sing.